think that's recording. Oh. Hi, Tony Martin here. Firstly, this is not Sizzletown. So if you're binge listening to them all a year from now, you're probably going to want to skip this one, go straight to number 35. There's no callers, there's no sound effects, there's no clips from on the buses. It's just me sitting here, waffling on for about half an hour. It's kind of like the Ash Williams show. Um, oh, oh, there's a plane. I wonder if that's a problem. Oh, see, I'm, I'm just in my lounge room, in between two sofa cushions with a doona over the top, as per Matt's diagram. And hopefully this is all going into the Zoom recorder. Um, like I say, there's no production elements. Need to get started. I don't have the music. But uh, Damien Cowell, who composes our theme, has loaned me this uh, this Casio tone. I'm not sure how to... Oh, there it is. All right, let's get started. Uh, thanks to Allegiance Wines, it's Sizzletown Unplugged. Chord change. <laughs> Back again. Yeah. And of course, this bit. And welcome to the show. And what is the show, you're asking? Well, at the end of the last proper Sizzletown, we mentioned that we were going to have to go monthly due to Matt Dower's selfish need to feed and clothe his family. Uh, I don't have a family. I have a large collection of DVDs, but they're very low maintenance. So I thought, what can I do to make up the numbers? Because, yeah, we're only going to do 18 episodes this year now, like we did last year. But I did promise 22. So I thought, what can I do? I can set up this fort in my lounge room and, uh, yeah, just have a waffle. Uh, I'm going to read out one of my old stories. We've got some talking points from friends of the show. As for sound effects, well, so I don't have access to the usual battery of noises, but I did find this. Um, this is a beavers and butthead model that you put on. This is an artifact from the 1990s, a thing you meant to put on the top of your telly. It's beavers and butthead sitting on their couch. And then every time you point your remote at the telly and push a button, it goes, Shut up, Bartnogger! <laughs> for example number of phrases. So you just change channels and they say, (laughs) so I'll be using that throughout the show to punctuate things. What a bunch of (laughs) dumbasses. Hey. Okay. Let's get started. Um, I, um, I mentioned to a friend of mine recently that I have been keeping a diary of every film I've seen since the 1st of January 1980. So at the end of this year, it'll be a 40-year record of time spent watching movies. Uh, And he said to me, what was the first one? Can you remember the first one? And I remembered it. It was Corvette Summer. (laughs) I don't know if anyone remembers this. I think it was the first film that Mark Hamill did after Star Wars. Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, of course. And the female lead was, as I remember, Annie Potts, who was the receptionist in Ghostbusters. And it was a load of rubbish. 
as I recall. But in those days, we would go and see any film that had someone from Star Wars in it. You go, hey, you want to go see Hanover Street? <laughs> Very dull World War II romance, but hey, it's got Han Solo in it. So what I've done is I, I've busted out this file. I haven't looked at this for about 20 years. I just keep adding to it, but I've never gone back and assessed it. So what I thought we could do is go through 1980. Maybe you'll remember what films you saw in 1980, if you're old enough. So I've printed it out. This is the first time I'm looking at this. There we go. It seems I saw 39 films in 1980. What the hell is this crap? Hey, whoa. And, oh yeah, there it is. There's Corvette Summer. That was the first one. I've given that one star. So I have a one to five star rating. Corvette Summer must have been shithouse. Okay, let's go through them. Oh my God, I don't remember half of these. The, the second film I saw in 1980 was The Prisoner of Zender. That was, oh, that was Peter Sellers. That's right, I'd go and see anything with Peter Sellers in those days. I've only given that two stars. Would have had sword fighting. Sword fighting and tap dancing. Any film that has those two in it, I'll go to. Then I've seen, whoa, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I must have seen that for the first time. And I've given it five stars. Although I would have been baffled. I'm sure by everything. Oh, okay, here we go. Double features, a lot of double features in those days. And I've been to see what was my favourite film when I was a kid, Return of the Pink Panther. I'm seeing that for the fifth time, it says. Five stars. And The Pink Panther Strikes Again, which I'm seeing for the fourth time. And I've given that only four stars. Not quite as good as the one before it. And I remember that double feature... That was at the Embassy Cinema in Hamilton. This is uh, this is um, 1980, so I would have been uh, 15 years old and living in Hamilton, New Zealand, in sixth form I would have been in high school. And, uh, yeah, I remember that double feature because, yes, I remember this is the one where they showed the first film and people killed themselves laughing and then they went to Interval and there was a bit of a huddle and everyone in the cinema decided, bugger it, forget the interval, let's just roll straight into the second film. So they sent a delegation up to the projection booth and then it just started like a minute and a half into the interval because we were pissing ourselves so much. Uh, after that, I've seen Alien. Wow, I've given that five stars. Must have been impressed by Alien. Although I would have seen all the shocking moments in Fangoria magazine, which is a very gory magazine that just had all of the horror moments. So I'm sure the film would have had no surprises. Then I've seen Moonraker, James Bond film. I've only given that three. That was with uh, Jaws, with his giant metal teeth. I think he'd already been in one, but in this one he had a girlfriend. And James Bond was in space, of course, because everyone was in space after Star Wars. Then I've seen Moonraker again. I've immediately gone for a second time. Uh, Bear Island is next. What was that? Bear Island. I think that was, oh, there was like an Alistair MacLean. Alistair MacLean was uh, my stepdad's favourite author. He'd always have paperbacks with, uh, f oh, what were they called? The Guns of Navarone. I think that was one of them. Uh, 
But what was Beer Island? I think it was Donald Sutherland and maybe Christopher Lee up at the Arctic. Oh, can't tell you anything more about that. Hamlet. Laurence Olivier's Hamlet I've seen. And <laughs> I've only given it two stars. That's right, because we had a, a print of it at school. So we had uh, two films at our school. So if uh, sport was rained out, we'd have to go and watch either Hamlet or The End, which was a comedy about suicide with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. I've clearly been unimpressed by Hamlet. After that, Star Crash. Oh, Star Crash. Okay. That was, uh, I'm assuming, an Italian knockoff of, um, of Star Wars. And yeah, because I've written down, I always write down the director's names. I've written down Lewis Coates, brackets, Luigi Cozzi. <laughs> so obviously that was one of those ones where the director sort of anglicised his name. I've given it one star. And I remember the bad guy, I think it was called Zarth. <laughs> it was like Zarth Vader. They didn't even bother. Um, then I've seen Escape from Alcatraz, which I've given four stars with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that was great. That was um, that was the one where he makes a paper mache version of himself to escape from prison. I, th I think it's a uh, based on a true story. Uh, not based on a true story is the next film on this list: Star Trek: The Motion Picture. I was never a Star Trek fan when I was a kid, but I've gone to see the film and I've only given it two stars. Is that the one where I think they got the director of The Sound of Music to make it? Was a very odd choice. And there was, it was all about Vija. What is Vija? And then the big reveal was, oh, it's the Voyager spaceship from Earth or something. It's very unimpressed. There was a woman, a very sexy woman with a shaved head, and I think her name was Persis Kambata. And I was very taken by her, seemed to recall. Uh, then the Lord of the Rings, but not the Lord of the Rings you know. No, this was the... I want to say animated, but it was more rotoscoped. That was where they would um, film a scene and then just draw over it, trace over it. And we were very unimpressed. I've given that two stars. I think we went and saw that for for school. Ralph Bakshi was the man who made that. Then uh, number 15 on the list, the Muppet movie. And I can't have been impressed. I've only given it two stars. Still find myself singing The Rainbow Connection 40 years later. I've been to see Murder by Decree, which was a Sherlock Holmes movie from the director of Porky's. And uh, I think uh, Christopher Plummer and James Mason were Holmes and Watson. Uh, they were probably chasing Jack the Ripper. That was the plot of all Sherlock Holmes films in this period. Guess it is. Uh, wow, another one of these Italian Star Wars knockoffs. I've seen something called The Humanoid, uh, directed by George B. Lewis, brackets Aldo Lado. And I remember this. This was with, uh, oh, I just mentioned him, Richard Keel, Jaws, from the James Bond films. Wow, he was riding high in those days. And Barbara Bach. Of course. Also from The Spy Who Loved Me, married to Ringo Starr, as I recall. Meteor. Oh, that was a, like a real 
sort of poor man's disaster. At the very end of the disaster movie cycle, they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I've given it two stars. Then I've seen the original Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. And I've only given it two stars. Why would that be? I guess it was um, the 3D would have been terrible. And as I recall, the creature is just a kind of bloke in a wetsuit, wasn't it? Mm. Oh, then I've seen, oh God, I've given 1941, Steven Spielberg's 1941, three stars. And that's a film people, you know, love to pile on now. Not funny, overblown. We thought it was pretty funny in New Zealand. The runaway Ferris wheel. We thought that was hilarious. Um, Then I've seen 10 Blake Edwards 10 with Dudley Moore. And I would have gone to that because that would have been the first non-Pink Panther movie that Blake Edwards had made in some time. And uh, I've only given it two stars because, uh, yeah, what, what I remember about it, well, obviously Bo Derek running along a beach in slow motion. That was very exciting for a 15-year-old. And I think there was a very funny bit early on where Dudley Moore tumbled down a mountainside But then the last hour of it was just, um, you know, long bits of Dudley Moore playing the piano in flared pants and bantering with Julie Andrews. We were very unimpressed by that. Much funnier, apparently, was the Kentucky Fried movie, which I've given four stars. Wow. Could you even screen that now? Everything in it would be considered hashtag problematic. There was racist jokes. There was a lot of boobs. You couldn't show that Thrill Seekers sketch anymore. Could you show Catholic high school girls in trouble? I don't know. What I remember about that is um, there was a hilarious parody of uh, disaster movie trailers called That's Armageddon with George Lazenby. And it said, you'll be horrified. You'll be, you know, terrified. And then it said, and these words are coming up on huge graphics. And it said, and you'll be scared shitless. And we laughed and laughed. And then when it was showed on TV, they changed scared shitless to you'll blow your lunch, which I remember we all agreed was just as funny. (laughs) That was the kind of important discussions we had in the lunch hour. After that, I've been to see the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, which I think was like a compilation of, you know, classic Chuck Jones shorts, but I've only given it two stars because it wouldn't have been enough Roadrunner. That would have been my problem. I was a huge Roadrunner fan. Being there with Peter Sellers, of course, great Hal Ashby film, four stars I've given that. But I do remember that was um, the initial release. Under the end credits, they had... Outtakes. This might have been even before the cannonball run, Burt Reynolds era of, you know, crazy bloopers under the end credits and everyone pissing themselves. But it, it was Peter Sellers cracking up and it really did kind of destroy the, the uh, sort of very fragile tone that the film had spent two hours creating. And I think Sellers was so pissed off that he made them uh, delete those and they... They weren't in subsequent screenings of it. This is important stuff. Important stuff to remember. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
I've seen that for the second... Why would I have seen that for the second time, given it four stars? Oh, that's right. I think we saw it at school because we were being made to read the book. The Life of Brian. Wow, I've given that five. Life of Brian, 1980. So Films must have come to New Zealand a bit later than the rest of the world because that's the initial release of that. And uh, I do remember that before Life of Brian and maybe... Older people who saw it in cinemas would remember this too. They showed a short, like a, a travel log that was completely straight and very boring for about 10 minutes. And then they got to Venice and the narrator of the travel log went and uh, here we can see some gondolas and uh, there's some more gondolas and now we're going to see more fucking gondolas. More fucking gondolas was probably the single biggest laugh I heard in a cinema in my entire childhood. Then I've seen The Black Hole. That was a Disney film. I've only given it two stars with floating robots. Maximilian Shell, I think. And that's right, my little brother had the Viewmaster discs of that film. Wow, how do you explain Viewmaster? That was It was like a pair of binoculars that you inserted these cardboard discs into and they had photos from the films. I'm explaining this very badly. And you would look into it and you would see, a th- uh, it was like stereoscopic, so you would see a 3D image and they would attempt to um, tell the entire story of the film in like uh, 27 images. And I remember uh, me and my brother spending hours just peering into it, trying to see if we could see the wires that were holding the floating robots up. Because uh, when I was a kid, it was all about spotting wires in films, which uh, they could not yet remove by computer. Um, what else have we got? Oh, Romeo and Juliet by the Italian sex pest. Franco Zeffirelli, only given that two stars. Must have seen that for school. Can't remember anything about it. Oh, then now we've got a series of double features. Listen to this for a shocking double feature. Killer Fish, <laughs> directed by Anthony Dawson, brackets Antonio Magaretti. One star. That was um, an Italian uh, piranha film with Lee Majors and Karen Black being attacked by leftover footage from the film Piranha. That's how I remember it. And that was teamed with Saturn 3. Wow, a science fiction film with, I think, Harvey Keitel and Farrah Fawcett Majors in space. Another floating robot held up by wires, if I recall. And directed by Stanley Donnan, the director of Singing in the Rain. Wow. And that was followed by another double feature, Crime Busters, which was Terence Hill and Bud Spencer in Miami. Um, Terence Hill and Bud Spencer were, again, Italians pretending to be Americans. And uh, their films were largely an unbroken fistfight for an hour and a half, occasionally punctuated by June Buggy Chase. And that was teamed with, oh, God, The Day the World Ended. Oh, that's Irwin Allen, the master of disaster films. And he, uh, of course, made The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. And then they got worse and worse, The Swarm. And this was absolute bottom of the barrel, although he managed to get Paul Newman and William Holden into it. 
And oh, that's right. So it's called the day the world ended in New Zealand. In the rest of the world, it was called when time ran out. <laughs> that was obviously not evocative enough. So it's the day the world ended. And how did it end? Well, it didn't. It was just a volcano on a resort island, if I recall. There was very little action. It was just people ordering room service for about an hour and a half. And then a very piss-weak volcano went off for about a minute and a half. And then it was people, all the stars, uh, trying to shuffle their way along a ledge over a river of lava and being bumped off in order of uh, where they were in the credits. That was piss-weak, giving it one star. And then another double feature... I've seen Monty Pythons are now for something completely different, which I've given five stars. That would be because I was too young to see the TV show. So all of the sketches in that film I would have been seeing for the first time. And yeah, I've given that the same rating as 2001. And that was teamed with 1941, which I've seen for the second time. Then number 35 on the list, Little Darlings. What was that? Little dark. I think that was, um, I think that was like uh, Christy McNichol, who was in a TV show called Family. Wow, no one would remember that. And Tatum O'Neill, and they were in a, they were on school camp in a race to lose their virginity. Wow, so it's like a, a chick flick. I've been to see that. I would have been going, there's no laser beams. Why is nothing exploding? I've given it one star. How awful. Oh, and th this is more like it. Then I've seen The Empire Strikes Back. Five stars, of course. Then I've seen The Wild Bunch. Sure. Oh, that's towards the end of the year. So by now, it's 1980, I would have been, when I've been 16, so I'd be old enough to see The Wild Bunch. I remember being quite shocked by the amount of people being machine gunned. And then I've ended the year with a double feature of Watch Out, We're Mad, uh, which is really the ultimate Terence Hill, Bud Spencer film. I, I claim to be seeing it for the second time, although I think I saw it about 10 times when I was much younger. I've given that three stars. And I've seen that with Superman 2, which I've given four stars. There seems to be some view now that there was an original Richard Donner version and that this version, the Richard Lester version, was not as good. I loved Richard Lester because he'd made the Three Musketeers films and the Beatles films. And uh, I remember that film had someone throwing a bus through a Coca-Cola billboard. I thought that was pretty amazing for 1980. Okay, so there it is. Those were the 39 films I saw in... Uh, in 1980. Crap on every channel. <laughs> okay, let's have a quick clip. I'm able to, uh, hopefully, I've plugged this in properly, and I'm able to play a clip from Chrissy Salmon Brownie, which is the finest breakfast show on Melbourne radio. I'm on there, well, every Tuesday at the moment, and here's a recent discussion from that fine show. What about the craziest bit of show business news this week? Surely it's that uh, David Campbell 
Yes. Is claiming that his four-year-old son yes, Billy. is yeah. the reincarnation of Princess Diana. Yes. And That's not made up. That is fact, Sam. Mm. Hey? It sounds I like a that. joke story and then you read it and you go, oh, they're serious about this. Yeah, absolutely serious with a lot of backing up um, evidence. And they've tested it by, they've shown the four-year-old like uh, pictures of three different castles and gone, which one do you live in? And yes. he's instantly pointed to the correct one. Yes, and he's mentioned stuff about Balmoral that no one would really know, like that it's yeah. covered in unicorns. Yeah. You have to sort of uh, wonder what Princess Diana herself is thinking about this. Mm. She's gone, okay, I'm dead. Oh, no, I'm back now. Who am I now? Hang on, I'm a, firstly, I'm a man. That's weird enough as yes, it is. a little boy. And then I'm, hang on, I'm, I'm Jimmy Barnes's grandson now? <laughs> this is a very strange turn of events for the Princess of Wales. <laughs> Hang on, and who's my dad? My dad is the, the bloke who sang Adam Ant's Goody Two Shoes on the Channel 9 New Year's Eve show a couple of years ago. <laughs> this is a very weird footnote in that the giant Game of Thrones book of the royal family. Someone sitting there with a, a quill writing in, and then the princess returned as Jimmy Barnes's grandson. <laughs> Just dot the eye there. Oh, well Isn't that a weird song for anyone else Man, but Adam Ant to sing? I had forgotten that David Campbell sang that song, and thank you so much. And two flash pots went off at the wrong time. Oh, it was great God. entertainment. What a bunch of dumb <laughs> that was an excerpt from Chrissy Salmon Brownie, the breakfast show on Nova 100 Melbourne. <laughs> Very true. Uh, I think it's just time for a story, and I've dug something out of the files. This was written for the Scrivener's Fancy, which is a website I used to run with Serena Rowell and Matt Quartermain way back in the late noughties. And this story, oh God, sorry, this was inspired by a dream. Now, I know nobody wants to hear other people's dreams. There's nothing less interesting, but I, I quite like this idea. I remember I dreamt I was at an amateur theatre production of Run For Your Wife, the Ray Cooney classic, and uh, for some reason, Batman was in it, and not the Adam West Batman, the uh, the more modern, um, what's his name? Sorry, my brain is back in 1980. Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight, he was in it. So I thought, okay, that's uh, that's a good idea for a story. And uh, yeah, so here it is. The name of the story is The Dark Knight Triumphant in classic Cooney farce. Whoa, check it out. A red bar, Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Here we go. It's hard to know what was going through Batman's head when he accepted the lead in the much-anticipated revival of Run For Your Wife at the old Gotham Playhouse. It had all started one evening at a benefit dinner for the Wayne Foundation. No one was too surprised when the event was gatecrashed by the Riddler. As usual, he'd been unable to resist preempting his appearance in a series of transparent and unfunny brain teasers posted on RiddleMeThis.com. 
I soon see arrive, bursting from a suspiciously large cake and a flurry of puns, the Cape Crusader rappelled down from a skylight and beat him yet more senseless before he could effect the advertised kidnapping. The target, Sir Marmaduke Fogg, no relation, the famous theatre director, fresh from a series of triumphs in Londinium's West End, was quick to offer Batman both his profound gratitude and the lead in his new play. As it was raining out and he was facing an elaborate series of high-altitude swoops and at least one somersault through a plate-glass window in order to return to Bruce Wayne's office on the 915th floor to change out of his bulky night-vision suit, Batman decided to accept Fogg's offer of a drink trailing his enormous scissoring hang glider wings, he repaired awkwardly to the cocktail bar. I'll have what you're having, he rasped to the flamboyant directors that pair pushed themselves on tall stools and surveyed the laminated bill of fare. Two cock-sucking cowboys, <laughs> Fogg barked at the barman, who plonked a folded napkin and dish of complimentary nuts before the dark night. Listen, Fogg, said Batman, maintaining his threatening croak, even as he suavely flipped cashews into his mouth. What would I want to do, run for your wife? And then... After a suitably dramatic pause, I'm Batman. The drinks arrived, and Batman sips daintily yet menacingly through a long, spiraling straw. I know you are, said Fogg, placing a reassuring paw on Batman's gloved and clenched fist. But I think you can be so much more. The crusader looked unconvinced. Fogg leaned in closer. You saw what I did with Green Lantern in Not Now, Darling. Batman allowed himself a tight smile. Darling had been a smash. In brightest day, in blackest night, get ready to split your sides, had screamed the headlines. Let those who worship evil's might watch this crazy, fast-sake flight. The lantern had stayed pretty much on script until the finale, only using his power ring to sort out a mix-up with the hotel reservations. Equally crowd-pleasing was the flash in No Sex Please, We're British. The various near-miss entrances and exits had never been executed with such lightning speed. 
and at the Justice League AGM, they were still talking about the elongated man's across-the-drawing-room brassier removal in Move Over, Mrs. Markham, Fogg's most recent West End hit. Season stretched to record 20th week. Maybe a spell creeping the boards wasn't such a bad idea. The crowds had loved him that time he'd run for mayor against the Penguin, laughably but memorably dramatised in his honour dishonour. All right, you got me, hissed Batman, slamming down his fellatio-themed beverage and firing a bat-hook into the ceiling. See you at rehearsals. And with that, he shot upwards and was gone, leaving his agent to sort out the details. In order to comply with equity regulations, Batman needed to go through at least the motions of an audition. He chose to recite the classic Two Ronnies fork handle sketch, playing both parts in a hissed and threatening manner that evinced little humour and led the scene at all stagehands in the flies to pinch their noses and recall the atom's disastrous leer. That performance itself was fine, but it was only visible to one audience member at a time, hunched over a microscope for a bum-numbing five hours, the bugle. The six-week rehearsal period was constantly disrupted by the actor's sudden bat-hook-assisted departures, supposedly to tackle some crime-related emergency, but which more and more the supporting cast chose to read as stage fright. Batman at first seemed miscast in the role of the Cockney cabbie with two wives, two lives and a very precise schedule for juggling them both, his massive cape repeatedly getting caught in the doors of the adjoining hotel rooms and his incessant, harshly growled ad libs Bigamy is a sickness and I'm the cure and relentless beating of the gay neighbour seemingly at odds with the light frothy tone of Ray Cooney's naughty but nice classic. But the scene where he cavorted and nothing but cowl and boxes was a winner and helped to offset some mystifying references to Aunt Harriet in the act two to and a force with the ice bucket. Throughout these rehearsals, which were plagued by sneak attacks by various supervillains that repeatedly resulted in the mise-en-scene deteriorating into a series of lengthy fistfights, Fogg encouraged the Dark Knight to take part in trust exercises with the rest of the company. 
Batman's standard response was to fling two capsules of knockout gas into the orchestra pit, summon a huge tank-like vehicle to the stage door, hurl himself through the shattering French doors and repair to the prow of the Chrysler building where he would stand broodingly, his billowing cape whipping against the cold Gotham night as he recited over and over the speech about the mix-up with the scanty panties. The pressure of the role, not to mention the ongoing raids on the Gotham Mint by the Clock King, incongruously teamed with Olga, resulted in frequent frustrating absences. No one was convinced today a Batman, who was clearly an elderly man with a dapper moustache, much like that worn by millionaire Bruce Wayne's manservant, turned up, sporting an even less convincing Cockney accent than usual. But somehow, come opening night, spirits were riding high. For the post-dress cast party, Batman had gassed the entire company and transported them in the Batcopter to his vast subterranean lair for a catered piss-up. The evening had ended with the host regaling his co-stars with several violent theatrical anecdotes, while the two actresses who played the roles of his nymphomaniac wives shot up and down on the Batpole's son's underpants. Break a leg, everyone, toasted Fog, raising high a freshly shaken butt-fucking bellboy. But by the time the curtain fell, two hours later, the only fractures sustained were those of three people in the front row and an unconscious two-face whose surprise appearance in Act 3 had resulted in the show's biggest laughs as he extemporised a new scene playing two separate husbands simultaneously. Applause for the actual cast members was muted and even the spray of flowers presented to a noticeably embarrassed Batman during the curtain call left a bitter aftertaste. Batman realised they were from Louis the Lilac just seconds before they exploded, bringing down what little of the scenery remained after the fight. In the Bar afterwards, Gordon and O'Hara were putting a brave face on it, with the Cape Crusader clutching a highball and taking small hesitant drags on a cigarette could read it on their faces. This came for you, said the Commissioner, handing Batman a folded note. It's from Egghead. Another threat to flood the city with albumin, snarled the dark knight. I'm afraid he was reviewing tonight's show for the Times, said Gordon. 
This is what he'll be filing in the first edition. Batman raised it to his cow, and by the time he'd finished reading the notice, was made full use of the author's penchant for egg puns, his face was taut with fury. No Bernard Cribbins, am I? he thundered. I'll show him whose performance is a badly timed yoke. But it was too late. By the time the times hit the newsstands, the city's criminals would all be laughing at him. Run for your wife had been a mistake. Batman could see that now. He needed to put it behind him, reassert his authority, show the scum on the streets who's boss. First thing in the morning, he'd call Fogg and say yes to nonsense. And that is it for Sizzletown Unplugged. Time for me to put the couch back together. As for regular Sizzletown, we'll be back with Matt Dower, with hopefully many of our regular callers and some closure on what's happened to Ash Williams. All thanks to Allegiance Wines. Visit allegiancewines.com.au forward slash Sizzletown. We'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Cheers. Cheers.